0: Thank you, Leisha, and thank you, choir, and Dr. Taylor, for leading us in worship this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite your attention to Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. This is sort of a part two to a sermon that we began last week and to a message that we began focusing our attention on this matter of spiritual warfare for several weeks now we've been talking about prayer as a vital component in the Christian life and one of the dynamics of our prayer life is that of spiritual warfare of engaging the enemy some might say well I don't know necessarily that there is an enemy well I do I promise you there is I heard Vance Havner say that one time he said I believe in a personal literal real devil for two reasons one the Bible says he exists and two I've done personal business with him Many of you can identify you felt the weight of the enemy's engagement in your life. Last week I began talking to you about the kind of church that threatens the very existence of the enemy. That threatens hell. Today I want us to continue in that mindset, but I want to make sure that we're clear on this. I'm talking about practical issues in this. I'm not talking about mystical kinds of things. I'm not talking about waving some spiritual sword of our own choosing that puts us in a place of power on the front lines. Jesus has defeated the enemy. He has overcome death, hell, and the grave. And our responsibility now is to follow in active obedience and abide in Christ. And the things that we will see in the book of Acts about a church that threatens hell are very simply patterns of their obedience that we need to take into consideration for our own lives. As we study the book of Acts, it's an amazing read. It really is this narrative of history of all the things that were happening. Some have called it the Acts of the Apostles, but really we could look at this and say this is the Acts of God. These are the Acts of the Holy Spirit working in that newly embryonic forming church. As we see in the the cradle of the Christian church, After the resurrection of Jesus, we begin to see believers proclaiming boldly His death, burial, and resurrection. And we see powerful things happen. And I've got to tell you, every time I read through the book of Acts, I find myself just enamored with all the things that the Spirit brings to light. But primarily, those practical things that begin to show me what kind of church this can be, could be, should be. And even more for each of us, reflectively, the kind of believer, individually, that we should be. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. A unique series of events. And let's read the text again as we did last week. We'll read from 11 to verse 20. God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands, so that even face cloths or work aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick, and the diseases left them. And the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. The evil spirit answered them, I know Jesus, I recognize Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit leapt on them, overpowered them all, and prevailed against them, so they ran out of the house naked and wounded. This became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Then fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified or honored. And many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. In this way, the Lord's message flourished and prevailed. May God add blessing and understanding to the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, this morning I pray that you would illuminate our hearts as we... Feast upon your word as we take this passage of scripture and and look intently upon it. and, And as we think together about what it means to engage the enemy in spiritual warfare. Oh God, may you do a miraculous work this morning in this preaching event. May you speak beyond me. May I be hidden behind the cross. And may people see Jesus and him crucified. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word preserved for us, for our Uh, edification, for building us up, for correcting us, for instructing us and guiding us. Lord, even now we pray that you would have your way during this time of worship and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we read, God is doing incredible things to the Apostle Paul. Uh, uh, Handkerchiefs are passed along that he's been near, that he's touched, taken to the sick and there many people are healed. Now, I know that in our day, people want to mimic those kinds of things. They want to develop, uh, in some way, a healing ministry. Paul never developed a healing ministry. He simply was privy to the Lord healing people. You need to hear that. It's important. If somebody today tells me that they're a faith healer and they have that gift and they're attracting others for the purpose of healing, I would recommend that they don't go to coliseums and arenas and sell out those kinds of venues. I would recommend that they go to hospitals and prisons and they uh, speak to people in those kind of conditions. I would encourage them strongly to go to a place like St. Jude and begin to touch people there rather than going to a place and saying for only so much a month, if you'll sow into our ministry, we'll send you this blessed anointed hanky. I just don't believe that that hanky-panky needs to be in the church. Agreed? I don't think that that's something that needs to happen. That was punny, I know. I just thought of that one on the fly. I apologize for that. But I don't believe that we need to be focused on religious gain, uh, religion for some personal gain. And that's what these men were doing. They were itinerant evangelists. They were casting out demons and evil spirits, but with no authority at all. I want to say this, though, about those experiences. Sometimes you and I find ourselves seeking deeper experience, and one commentator said it well. Instead of, in our lives, us focusing on the experiences of the apostles, we need to focus on the teaching of the apostles. The people there in the New Testament church were devoted to truth. They were devoted to the the, the New Testament uh, is filled with them. Following after the disciples in their teaching. So listen to this. We must not make the tragic mistake of teaching experience, but rather experience the teachings. I'm not looking for a deeper experience. I'm simply looking for Jesus. I want my life to be so consumed with that relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that my life would honor Him and please Him. And here these men are carrying out religious activity in the name of Jesus, probably for profit. It says they were itinerant exorcists. We know that the demon answered them. He said, Jesus we know, Jesus I know, Paul we know about, who are you? There was a very pointed mark of of conflict there as the demon said, I recognize nothing about you that has authority over me. And yet we know time and time again the demons bowed to the authority of Jesus. They would shriek back knowing that he had the power to speak a word over them. And here's what I want you to see church we didn't get to this last week and this is really not even in your notes for this week I just put it on as an addendum but I want you to see the four results of this activity let's put those on the screen if we can very simply verse 17 it says that the name of Jesus was held in high honor there was respect for Jesus you may want to scribble these four things down a real revival that comes to Hardy Street Baptist Church and to America, or to anywhere for that matter, will experience these results. Will see these results. There was great respect for Jesus. Now go back to the story with me. All of these seven men were beaten so severely that they fled the house. As they fled the house from one man and one evil spirit jumping on them, Everybody around knew about it, and they began to hold the name of Jesus with high regard. They understood that there is the authority, there is the power, there is the one to whom we turn. But secondly, I want you to see this, verse 18. It says, many of those who became believers confessed their sins. Look at it with me. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. We don't know fully exactly what those evil deeds were. Perhaps they were dabbling in magic. We see that in verse 19 and and following. But I want you to see that they confessed their sins. They would forsake them. Perhaps some of these who dabbled in magic were doing so for profit themselves. And many, I would imagine, hung on to their books, hung on to their scrolls. And they did so thinking, well, if this new way doesn't work, I can go back. Folks, we can't have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. We can't have one foot in the world and one foot uh, clearly focused on following Jesus. You can't walk in two different directions. You can't fellowship light and darkness. You can't live your life in that kind of duplicity, that kind of hypocrisy. It does not work. There's no power there. There's nothing to hang on to there. There's no reality of the following of Jesus. We are to surrender everything to him. And they did that. They confessed. Church family, look at me. I'll never forget this. I have friends who were involved in a true revival a few years ago up in a church in North Mississippi. After the morning service, one of the things that the pastor that day had done, the attendant evangelist that spoke, the revivalist, he put a garbage can at the altar. And he said, some of you have some things in your life that belong there, not here. You're hanging on to some things in your heart that belong there. And a man who was a deacon in that church walked down the aisle on Sunday night with a fifth of Jack Daniels in his hand, and he put it in the garbage can. And let me tell you, revival broke out. Revival broke out in the coming days. To the point where people would come literally bring in pornographic materials and throw them in the garbage cans. People were coming by the droves to the altar and praying. In fact, they began one night raising money. God just put it on a man's heart. He gave a piece of jewelry that he had and said, I want this to go toward pushing back the darkness in our community. I don't even know what that's for. Another man stood and redeemed that and he gave a little more money and gave the man his jewelry back and it just began going from there. And by the time all was said and done, they took that money and a group of businessmen got together and they bought the local abortion clinic in South Haven, Mississippi and shut it down. That's a picture of real revival. I don't want you to lose this. I'm not talking about some willy-nilly feeling. I'm not talking about emotionalism. I'm talking about very real steps of repentance. When they began to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus, they immediately said, woe is me, I am undone. And they would confess, and not only confess, but forsake sin. I think many of us will acknowledge sin, but we don't confess it. We don't agree with God that it's wrong. We have respectable sins in the church that we can hang on to. And the reality is we will never experience the full blessing and the measure of the power of God that he desires for his bride until we have confessed and forsaken sin. Again, I haven't even gotten to my message. This is Lanyap. I just want you to see this with me. Respect for Jesus. Confession of sin. True repentance. Verse 19, it says that those who were dabbling in those things gathered their scrolls together and they burned them. I don't know why or who recorded all of the uh, the value, but it says that they tallied it up and it was 50,000 pieces of silver, perhaps drachma. That means that it was literally 50,000 days wages. Repentance costs. It may cost us some time. It may cost us some popularity in this Uh, current culture It, it may cost us with persecution in coming days but they were willing to repent and fourthly I want you to see this in verse 20 look at that verse what a powerful powerful statement in verse 20 the gospel went out how because the reaction of the Christians to the treatment handed to these seven exorcists resulted in the growth of the church in this way it says the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power Let me say it this way, church family. Whenever there's visible evidence that men and women's lives have been changed for the better because of the gospel, Jesus is always honored and His kingdom is always expanded. A changed life is one of the very best testimonies for Jesus. A life that has been transformed. A number of years ago, a British constable, he was a police officer named Billy Banks, was responding in Bristol to a bank robbery. The bank robbery was already in progress as he walks to that bank. It was the famed Lloyd's Bank in Bristol. And he was going in, and there was a man who shot him. The robber shot him in the face. He was severely injured, obviously uh, hanging on for life for a time. And he was medically discharged from his duties, unable to perform. So from that point forward, disabled. This man who had shot Billy Banks Banks, went to prison. And rightfully so. He was in prison for 20 years, but something unique happened in the middle of that prison sentence. Billy Banks wrote him a Christmas card, forgave him, told him about Jesus. This man later came to full knowledge, and the media took hold of it by storm. And they arranged a meeting. He wanted to apologize. He was broken for his actions. And so he invited Banks and his family to come to the prison. You could well know or see how he would stay away from that. Stephen Corsa was the man's name. And Corsa invites Banks, and they meet together. And in the meeting, they become friends over the course of time. And this is what Banks said to a national newspaper there in Britain. I had no issues with forgiving him. That's the very essence of my Christian faith. Here's a man who's had his livelihood completely taken away. He's had his life, uh, quality of life taken away because of being shot in the face. And he says, I had no issue forgiving him. Why? Because of all that Jesus has forgiven me. Maybe, just maybe, if you and I got to that place where we recognize the authority, the power, and the grace of Jesus Christ, confessing, forsaking sin, repenting of sin, and turning to him would be no issue. You see, I'm not talking about, uh, again, a willy-nilly emotional feeling. I'm not talking about warm fuzzies. I'm talking about the genuine faith that we are called to display in Jesus Christ. Satan is not trying to just distract us to get us to sin. He's wanting us to disbelieve. Hear that. He doesn't want you to place your faith in God. He wants to do all that he can to keep you away, and all sin is ultimately rooted in unbelief. You're saying to God, I either know better than you do or you don't know what you're talking about or simply I don't care what you're talking about. And in all of those scenarios, we're disbelieving God. We're not trusting Him. All that is not a faith, the Bible says, is sin. I thought about this when I read the story of Billy Banks this week. When, whenever we abandon the values of this world, we become living letters to the transforming, constraining power of the Lord Jesus Christ. So from this one incident, we see all of these things. Interesting, what we've seen here is a revival initiated by a demon. This demon spoke up, beat these men, sent them bleeding and fleeing, and revival breaks out. As the revival breaks out, here's where I want us to go next. Think about the attitude, the atmosphere of the New Testament church. I just began reading through the rest of the book of Acts last week and this week as I thought about this and it took me to a couple places. I'm going to finish out, I promise you. We'll get to those things that mark this church but listen to this. Acts 13, 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Let me say that again. As they went out, The people begged that these things be told them the next Sabbath. I can't imagine, but that this is the dream of every preacher, that people in the middle of the week would say, Oh, preacher, would you just go ahead and tell us that? They would beg for more good news. They would beg to be preached to more. That doesn't happen in most places in society, but here in the book of Acts, it happened. And I just began to think about the, the reaction of the people to the gospel. Because here's what happens, that's in verse 42, but in verse 44 it says that the next Sabbath almost the entire city gathered. The people got so excited about the message of the gospel that they went out with a longing in their hearts, begging for more, and they invited so many people that the entire city showed up. What would that look like in Hattiesburg in the coming days? What would it look like if we gathered tonight, and it's not because of Greg Frizzell, it's because of the Holy Spirit of God, but what would it look like if we gathered in this place, began to pray earnestly that God would move, began to see clearly the beauty of Jesus, began clearly seeing the power of Jesus, the plan and the purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we went out in such mass force that we invited people all around us and said, you can't miss it, you better not miss it. And the whole town showed up what would it look like that's revival and I believe that it happens when the people of God respond to God it happened in Acts 13 it happened in Acts 19 we see it time and time again it happened in the Old Testament think about the people of Nineveh who responded here's preaching of the Word of God and in mass they repented we we see over and over again in scripture the response to the gospel is what matters And when you and I begin to live out our faith the way that God has designed it, it makes an impact on the world around us. Think about this. It just blesses my heart and refreshes my spirit to think about a city responding in repentance. I read one other story this week that really made me think of that idea of revival. Widespread impact. Jonathan Edwards preaching his famed message, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He preached it at his church with very little response, but he preached it in Enfield in a revival series of meetings. And when he went there to Enfield, people just literally in droves ran to the altar. It said of those people in Enfield that they clung to their pews in fear that they would slip away and fall into hell. Church, is not about emotionalism. I I could scream and get lathered up and just scratch out a place and pitch a fit up here and cry out to you and say, hell is real. I could begin to cry out to you and say that Jesus is coming back. I could cry out to you and say, we need to repent. I could cry out and say, oh, God, we need revival. But if you and I don't sense the power of God in our midst, then we need to just back up. And look into our own hearts and say, is there sin in my life that's keeping revival from flowing in this church? Is there sin in my life that's keeping the power of God from flowing in my home? Maybe, just maybe, there's something God has told you to do long years ago or days ago or even now. And you're sitting on your hands and you're saying, no, Lord, and those two words don't go together. If he's the Lord of our lives, then we surrender ourselves to him. We submit ourselves to him and say, oh, Jesus, whatever you want. These people weren't concerned with the profit that they would make. They weren't concerned with the value of those things. They burned them. They said, all of that can go. I'm following Jesus. Throughout the history of the church, there have been martyrs who have been burned at the stake in in those burnings. I heard an Incredible quote, it said this Those who were burned understood that the fires that they endured Were far, far less than the fires that they deserved Oh dear God, may we get a glimpse of hell Oh dear God, may we get a glimpse of heaven Oh dear God, may we get a glimpse of the length of eternity And the beauty of Jesus The church that impacts hell Is a church that responds in obedience to the gospel Let's look together very quickly. I'm going to walk through these thoughts. Number one, the early church was devoted to truth. We see this throughout the book of Acts. Acts 2.42 is the primary place I would turn your attention. They were continually persisting in doing all that Jesus had taught the apostles. They were devoted to truth. The Bible says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Devoted is a very, very strong word. In our society, there's not many things that we're devoted to anymore. I know many people of past generations that worked 30 and 40 years at one job. The average person these days, and it's not all our fault, it's just culture and the nature of where we are. Many people today will have upwards of 20 jobs. But the idea of a company being devoted to an employee and an employee being devoted to a job is just a bygone era. But the reality is when we see the word here, the word is even deeper than a career. It says they would stake their life for truth. I am so devoted to it. I am so consumed by it that truth and the pursuit of truth marks every part of my being. Are you pursuing truth? are you just gaining a little knowledge? Listen, we ought to be like those in Acts 13 when we come to Sunday school. And you ought to beg your Sunday school teacher to feed you the Word of God. And you ought to beg God to speak through that person. And through me as your pastor, we ought to be begging God for truth. Oh God, illuminate truth to our hearts so that our lives will be on the right path. They were devoted to truth. Secondly, I want you to see this. They were dependent upon prayer. They were prayerfully dependent. Prayer was not added on or tacked on. We understand that the place where they were praying was shaken in the early parts of the book of Acts. We see over and over again them crying out to the Lord and seeking His favor, His face, His direction. But they were dependent on prayer. I don't think that we're very dependent at most turns of our lives on prayer. I'll just confess that I find myself so far beyond that statement. Not prayerfully dependent but actually independent of prayer we go about much of our lives much of our decisions and the sad reality is we're missing out we're living beneath the privilege that we have Paul spoke of his love and his passion for uh, unbelievers but it came, and we'll get to that in a moment but it comes from this idea of prayer listen to these words prayer enables us with power energizes us with boldness and endows us with purpose when we find ourselves connected to the Lord, when we find ourselves prayerfully dependent, it changes everything. I have a friend who is a chaplain for the PBR, the Professional Bull Riders Association, and one of the things that he does, interestingly, I've watched him share the gospel in a riding ring as he breaks a horse. Now, I don't know about you, if you think about the picture of a group of horses out on the the mountainside of Montana, you think, boy, those things are free. I mean, there's just a picture of freedom there. They're running pack out into the the sunset. And my friend Todd said something that really disturbed me, but it, it captured my attention. He said, those horses aren't free. They're just wild. You see, a lot of us think that we're free when we're outside of God's control of our lives. We're not free. We're just wild. He said, think about this. When a horse comes under the hand, submitted to a master, all of a sudden it has provision." and it has purpose and you and I oftentimes live our lives outside the scope of God and God still provides for us those horses don't have shelter those horses don't have a an adequate sustainable continual source of food they have to find it but when they're submitted to a master they find themselves under his sheltering protection they find themselves under his hand of provision and ultimately that horse has purpose if it's running wild on the mountainside it doesn't have real purpose it's just there but under the skillful hands of that master, with the reins in his hands, he can guide that horse to do work. He can guide that horse, to, whether it's cutting and, and doing the uh, cutting horse kinds of things to work wa- with, with cows, or whether it's to ride fence, or whatever the purpose is, it now has provision, protection, and purpose. Folks, I, I simply share that story with you for you to maybe see in your own life. Are you prayerfully dependent are you trying to seek freedom from God or freedom in God? Because really, when you're outside, you're not free. You're just wild. No protection, no provision, no purpose. Does that make sense for somebody in this place today? I pray that you'll walk away with that. Number three, the early church was a demonstration of evangelism. I mean, you talk about a clinic. They just went out and shared everywhere they went. Paul had this burning desire, and it, it was birthed out of prayerful dependence but he saw the love of Jesus Christ in his own heart and he wanted everybody to see that. Hear me out of this next statement. We must not become so obsessed with our own struggles and spiritual growth that we forget about people who need to know Christ. They were so focused on sharing the gospel. I think of over and over again in those early stages of the church and even before the resurrection of Jesus, encounters that people had with him that led to evangelism there was a woman at the well let me ask you did this woman have a good reputation or a bad reputation bad reputation the Samaritan woman scorned by society and she found herself right smack dab in an encounter with Jesus at the well and Jesus speaks living hope to her and she trusts in Jesus, and she leaves her water pot, and she runs back to the city. And there in John chapter 4, it says she shared with everybody. Come and see a man who told me everything about myself. And it says something beautiful, and many believe because of her testimony. This woman was a, a true witness, but she didn't go through witness training. She didn't go to seminary. She just knew that she was lost, and now she was found. She knew that she walked in hopeless and walked out with hope. Church, if you've got hope today, spread it, share it, exchange all of the the shame and guilt of your past. If you've given those things up and found hope and freedom in Christ, then tell it. They were an example of that. And I believe with all of my heart that if we're going to threaten hell in Hattiesburg, we've got to become a demonstration of evangelism. I've been told over and over again, even in my years as a pastor, well, you know, door-to-door visitation doesn't work anymore. You know why it doesn't work for most churches? Because most churches don't do it. It's amazing, the more doors you knock on, the more times you'll have opportunity to share Jesus. And in the coming days, we're going to work back toward that, looking at our strategy as a staff leading this church to reach out in higher ways. I've given you the easy way out. I gave you most.com. If you've not put your story there, well, I'm going to take you out with me, and I'm going to make you knock on doors everywhere. Now some of you are going, now what's that website again? Let me find that. Let me write that down. It's a simple way. They were a demonstration of evangelism. Let's keep going. The early church was directed by the Holy Spirit. I love this picture. You see it in several places. One of my favorites is in Acts chapter 8. Philip is in the middle of a revival, and Philip leaves because the Spirit said go. And he went down, and he met the Ethiopian eunuch, and all of a sudden, here's a willing witness and a man who is searching, and they come together, and Jesus changes that man's life, and he's gloriously saved and baptized. Why? Because they were directed by the Holy Spirit. Look at the next statement. I want you to read this statement with me. You ready? Here we go. It is impossible to read the book of Acts without seeing the evident power of the Holy Spirit working through the first century churches. Not just in the miraculous sign gifts, but in the daily witness of the churches. Why did you have us read that, Pastor? Because I don't think it's impossible to look at Hardy Street Church at times and not see the Spirit. You realize there are a lot of things churches put in their bulletins that they do that have nothing to do with the power of God. We can go eat catfish at the water mill without the Spirit of God directing us. We can have Joy Club or Game Day or Secret Church without the Spirit of God directing us. We can gather in this room for an hour and sing and preach without the Spirit of God. I don't want to do anything without the Spirit of God. I want the Spirit of God to so saturate our lives that everything we do is consumed and we're directed by the Spirit of God in everything. I don't want us to take one single step. I don't want us to spend one single penny that the Spirit of God didn't say, I... Put my blessing upon that activity, and our church would become so threatening to hell that people around would beg to hear the word of God. Oh, I want to hear it, preacher. Teach me the word of God. Tell me how to be saved. And you would begin to share with your neighbors, and we would impact hell. We would push back darkness, and we, to the glory of God, would experience power in this place. Number five the early church, and this really should be number one, but I saved it for last so you would hang on to it. All of these other things happened because the early church was dead to sin and self. Dead to sin and self. The unalterable basis of an open heaven is a grave. At a crisis in which you come to the end of your own self-life, It's the crisis of real experiential identification with Christ and his death. The Apostle Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. I said it last week. Why did they have so much trouble with Paul? Because you can't threaten to kill a dead man. He'd given up his rights to self and said, Jesus, I belong to you. Some of you need to sign the title deed over this morning and say, Jesus, you need to be in charge of my life. I've been running the show for too long, and I've run it into the ground. Jesus, I need you. When we come to the end of ourselves, you see, the church did that. We see it in abundant places. I don't have to run references for you. We see it in Acts chapter 4 as they held things in common. My stuff is just stuff, and I want to bless people with stuff, if stuff will be a blessing. My Needs, my desires are not forefront. Whatever Jesus wants, that's where Philip would get up and go. That's where the Apostle Paul would be shipwrecked and beaten and not give up because he knew the truth. And he was dead to self. When we die to self and we die to our own desires, then we move forward in this very thing. We realize that the basis of an open heaven is a grave. We need to die. I'll close with a prayer one of my favorite books, it's a little book that somebody gave me years ago and it's called The Valley of Vision, it's just a collection of Puritan prayers and we don't know the, the names of the authors, they were just compiled by an editor, but listen to this, this was a man in the 1700s that simply said, Lord Jesus, I sin, grant that I may never cease grieving because of that. Grant that I may never be content with myself or never think that I can reach a point of perfection on my own. Lord Jesus, kill my envy, command my tongue, trample down self. Give me grace to be holy, kind, gentle, pure, peaceable, and to live for Thee and not for me. Lord Jesus, I desire to copy Thy words, Thy acts, Thy spirit. And to be transformed into thy likeness. To be consecrated wholly to thee and live entirely to thee and to Your glory, thy glory. That was just his morning prayer. Where did he start? Why did that one capture my heart? Because he said four words. Lord Jesus, I sin. I'll just be honest. You're here today and you say, well, preacher, I go to church. Preacher, I'm actively involved in Sunday school. I, I'm pretty plugged in here. I'm here pretty regularly. Some of us need to start our day, maybe even right now, just simply say, Lord Jesus, I sin. They were willing to confess and forsake sin and it spread the gospel to the whole world. I'm thankful that they they did because that left room for us. If we want to be a church that will threaten hell, we need to be directed by the Spirit of God. We need to be focused on evangelism, dependent upon prayer, all of those things that I've mentioned and more. And we need to do so with a great heart of love for Jesus. We simply get a glimpse of His glory, and it changes everything. Let's pray. Father, thank You for our time this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you for our, our worship in this place. But God, we, we would be remiss if we did not call people with, with opportunity to respond. So this morning, in this time of decision, Lord, would you, through the work of your Holy Spirit, just call out those who need to be saved. Oh God, I pray that you would press into their hearts and they would respond to you by faith. God, for all of us, may we confess and forsake sin. And may our lives become a threat to the, the forces of evil around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand as we sing. Members of the staff will be here at the front. We would be happy to share with you how to be saved this morning. Maybe you need to come to the altar. Whatever the need is this morning, let God have His way.